0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another installment of Podcast 360, your go to resource for medical news and clinical updates. I'm your moderator, Lee Precopio, with Consultant 360. Accurately identifying and describing eponymous extremity fractures is an important part of any primary care provider's skill set, yet, it is an ability that comes with time and experience. Reviewing radiological findings, terminology, and characteristics of common extremity fractures is critical, as many of these injuries are often mislabeled. To learn more about properly identifying and describing these fractures, Consultant 360 reached out to Sarah Bolander, who presented on this topic at the 2021 American Academy of Physician Assistants Annual Conference. Sarah is an associate professor in the Physician Assistant Program at Midwestern University in Glendale, Arizona. Thank you for taking the time to speak with me today, Sarah. To begin, could you give us a
1: brief overview of your session? Yes, absolutely, of course. Uh, First of all, I'd really like to thank Consultant 360 for this opportunity to discuss this session and for AAPA to allow me to present on this topic during the recent virtual conference. Eponymous fractures and fracture dislocations are commonly named after the individual that initially described them. So this session really went through not only the language of fractures, but helped to clarify the specific fracture patterns that are associated with fractures that have eponyms. And so we used common upper and lower extremity fractures that have specific names to them to better work through identifying and describing fractures. So really the goal was overall to practice identifying describing fracture by using these eponyms as examples. Fracture identification and description can be extremely challenging. And so I feel like it's a skill that needs to be developed through practice. And not everyone gets that opportunity to practice that on a regular basis. So we definitely wanted to use eponyms as a way to kind of guide that practice, but also make sure that we clarified so that we're using those terms correctly. What are some common pitfalls primary care providers make when identifying and describing eponymous extremity fractures? Eponymous fractures do allow for really a rapid and succinct identification of very complex injuries, which I think can be extremely beneficial. But unfortunately, often these named injuries are mistermed, and then that can create some confusion, and often it can misdirect management, including the urgency of the treatment that's needed for these different injuries. So we need to avoid overall casually using these eponyms unless we're really confident that they actually describe the fracture that's being presented because they can lead to being uh, either a missed or a misdiagnosed. For example, a Collies fracture technically doesn't have articular involvement, whereas a dorsal type of a Barton fracture does. Although they appear very similar on imaging with some dorsal displacement, we really need to know if there's articular involvement or not because that definitely can affect our treatment and potential long-term outcomes from this type of an injury. Do any specific patient characteristics, such as those at risk of osteoporosis, impact how you identify and describe fractures? This is actually a really great question. Uh, We know that osteoporosis weakens the bone, and it definitely increases our risk for fractures, particularly in certain locations of the body, for example, the hip, the wrist the spine, but these are considered more insufficiency fractures. So they don't necessarily change how we identify or describe them other than adding that component because we need to be able to evaluate the quality of the bone. But what they do is they can affect our treatment strategy based on that quality and what options we have, and they can direct the care to prevent additional fractures. To be honest, anytime there's a fracture in the bone, we really do need to take the time to assess the quality of the bone. And we become particularly concerned if there's something like a pathologic fracture. These fractures can be extremely challenging to fully describe because they require additional considerations. And any underlying condition that can increase your risk for fracture needs to be worked up. This can be benign or it might be malignant. So we need to be concerned of uh, these potential additional features, such as concerns with the border or additional bone destruction. Uh, there might be some abnormal periosteal reaction that we need to address. We may see some involvement into the soft tissue. Um, and we need to then further work up our history as well to deciding if there was pain prior to the injury, if they have any uh, history of cancer, for example, and we might be concerned about a metastatic lesion. So radiographs are extremely valuable to differentiate these concerning features and can kind of further guide our workup and management and where their next step might be in referral process as well. How does identifying and describing extremity fractures differ in children and adolescents from adults? Children and adolescents are extremely unique when it comes to fractures. It's a whole nother group children have unique fracture patterns because they have more plasticity to their bone. They have the strength of their periosteum. They have potential for remodeling. So even as they continue to heal and develop, they have these potential that adults don't have. So often their treatment is extremely different. When it comes to describing them, they have incomplete fractures, such as a buckle fracture, which is also commonly called a torus fracture. Uh, they may have a green stick fracture or bowing deformity. So they present different And these are described differently. They often don't have as significant displacement with those types of injuries, um, although they can have complete fractures, just like adults. And there are several fractures with eponyms that they can share. um, And then there's other variants that are specific to the age and population, particularly if it's involving a growth plate any patient that is still skeletally immature will have these growth plates, the physis. And if a fracture involves the physis, it needs to be further described. We actually use the Salter Harris classification, which is another eponym. And that actually helps us to determine the location of the fracture and the involvement of the physis. And if it extends into the metaphysis or the epiphysis or both. Um, And that can really help us not only with some of the termed fractures, such as a Tolo fracture, which is a Salter-Harris 3 fracture we see in the distal tibia, versus a triplane fracture, that's a Salter-Harris 4 fracture, where you're seeing differences on different views of where the epiphysis and the metaphysis and physis are involved in this type of a fracture. So when we get the growth plate involved in these types of injuries, there are definitely some additional components in describing them. And this also helps guide management, but also gives us some idea of potential long-term effects to growth as well. What other knowledge gaps exist among primary care providers on orthopedic topics? That's a challenging question because unfortunately, I feel that many providers don't really receive a rigorous musculoskeletal training. For example, in PA school, we don't have a rotation specific to orthopedics. So unless this is an area of interest and something you choose to specialize in, many providers may feel they lack the expertise or the comfort level for treating some of these conditions and they feel more comfortable referring out. Also, another thing I think that comes up is with musculoskeletal imaging, that often we rely on the radiology interpretation. And so we wait for that, or uh, we're not confident with our exam, and we don't take that time to clinically correlate. And it's so extremely important that we make sure we not only take a look at imaging, but make sure that that does match up with what we're seeing in our practice and how our patient is presenting. Because often There are many uh, normal variants that we may see, especially in the pediatric population, and we need to make sure that that actually correlates with how they're presenting today, especially uh, when there's abnormalities in the bone as well. And making sure is that actually a concern with the injury they're presenting with today, or does that happen just to be an incidental finding, for example? I think it's hard because the topic, although it's on eponymous fractures, and the goal is to better describe these named fractures and really understand what is involved in these and how they got their name, it's more important that we know our fracture terminology and how we better describe fractures and that we can really specify location, which can be more complicated than just saying which bone, but where in the bone, and if there's any special terminology with that, the type, the pattern, uh, the position, that can get really complicated on if there's displacement, angulation, translation, um, and any potential complications, such as if it's an open fracture, this is something we'd want to lead with, um, because that's going to definitely change our management. So there's so much more that goes into identifying and, describing a fracture. And so we just need to be careful if we're going to label it and give it a name because it can be so helpful. But at the same time, we may be missing something that really is critical in the injury and how they're presenting. Thank you so much for taking the time to answer my questions today. Oh, I so sincerely appreciate it. I always look forward to the opportunity to discuss fractures and definitely am grateful to Consultant 360 for this opportunity and hope that others can find opportunities, learn more about uh, orthopedics and fractures, and that there's many opportunities out there to gain that knowledge and skill if that's an area of interest.